I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about the White House. You all love it when I talk about politics. Hell, I get so many reports that all I do is talk about politics and how much you absolutely love it. Don't worry, I'm not talking about politics. Well, I am a little bit, but I'm not talking about the politics you think I'm about to talk about. Because on this week's episode, there's Stitch, by the way. Come here, pal. Because on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about the White House and UFOs. But first, as always, shout-outs! Welcome Nick, Manning, Jeff, Megan, Cat, Martin, Lash, Kira, Maggie. Hi, Maggie! Hope you're feeling better. Laura O., Anthony, Todd, and Elijah Hendrickson. Jamie Hendrickson, Dan, Angie, Matt, Laura, Chuck, Travis, Sarah, Amber, David, Nanashi, Michaela, Heidi, Rachel, Lindsay, Juliana, Edgar, Sarah, Jmark, Carolyn, Jim, Jade, Carolyn, Pablo, Laura, Shani, Jeff, Dill, Laura, Daniel, Laura, Autumn, Emmanuel, and Kathy. And that's McKeon for those in the know. All right, first up we have Paranormal News. Oh, those people are incredibly cool. Go over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. You can also buy merch at storedenvy.com slash param. Just go to storeenvy.com. It's one E between the store and the envy. Storeenvy with one E. Dot com. Search for Paranormal Almanac for all your Paranormal Almanac needs. Okay, let's jump right in to Paranormal News. This first one is a brand new story coming out from Texas about a UFO sighting in Texas. A Keller resident records mysterious cigar-shaped object in the sky. So the motionless cigar-shaped object spotted a couple weeks ago near Fort Worth left the witness stumped, and a video of the sighting has since gone viral. That video will be posted to Paranormal Almanac on Facebook. Now, it's an interesting video. I gotta admit, I took a look at the video. It's interesting. It's kind of hard to tell what it is exactly. Uh, there were some people who thought it was probably it was probably a blimp. There's a it kind of does look like a blimp, which a lot of people seem to think it is. But Texas UFO administrator said they couldn't find any information. The Goodyear blimp was scheduled to be in Keller on November 18th, the day of the sighting. November 18th, one day before my birthday. Further, the witness said it sat motionless in the sky for 20 minutes. Similar UFO sightings were reported in Brownsville in on uh, August 2016 and El Paso in August 2018. Now, the witness said that it was the oddest thing I'd ever seen. I watched it for about 20 minutes. It didn't move. I don't think I've ever seen in the, anything in the sky stay that still before, not even for a few seconds, let alone 20 minutes. So, when you get a chance, head on over to facebook.com slash paranormalalmanac Watch the video and let me know what you think. Because, well, I'm just going to leave this one up to you guys. It is odd. It's not clear enough for me to say it's a spaceship or anything man-made for sure. But uh, it is odd to say the least. Okay, and with that, let's go over to another story. 
The Curious Rise of Crypto Tourism In Search of Animals That Don't Exist Well, headline and luxury travel advisor, animals that might not exist or animals that probably exist we just don't know about. How, how about that for a title instead of animals that don't exist? So basically, the story is all about cryptotourism. The International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, has estimated that the search for mythical beasts generates over $140 million per year to the U.S. economy alone. And 40 million pounds goes to the Scottish economy annually in the search for Loch Ness. The search for Nessie. So they're basically saying that there is a huge boom, a huge surge in cryptozoology tourism, or crypto-tourism, as they call it. It goes on to say, beyond the A-list cryptids of the Loch Ness Monster, Nessie, she's not a monster, Bigfoot and the Yeti, there are a number of lesser-known mythical creatures around the planet. In the regions of Java, Vietnam, and the Philippines, locals believe in giant bats known as the Ahul. In Indonesia, some believe in the existence of a bat-monkey hybrid known as the Orang Bati. It goes through a list of cryptids, and I gotta say, it's kind of a good list, to be honest with you. I'm gonna post this article as well on our Facebook page, because, frankly, if you're gonna go on vacation, you might as well look for a cryptid, or a ghost, or a UFO while you're out there. And speaking of UFOs, our last story before we get to the topic at hand is Spanish man builds 60-foot spaceship to visit planet from his novels. His name is Lucio Ballesteros, and he says he spent about 100,000 euros to build his own spacecraft. Now, Lucio is an 87-year-old writer, musician, and YouTuber from Spain. Now, the craft measures about 60 feet in diameter and weighs nearly 2,600 pounds. It's a saucer-shaped UFO made out of aluminum and methacrylate. He said the craft won't be operational until he installs some motors and doesn't imagine it'll be used until sometime far in the future. He told the Spanish newspaper El Aldil Gallego that humanity will have to evolve physically, nope, psychically, and spiritually before people can figure out how the technology that powers the craft works. So basically, you don't know. You're hoping that we will figure it out. Basically... It's a shell of a UFO. Looks kind of neat from the inside. I'll give him that. And he's hoping that one day we'll figure out how to actually uh, create a motor for a UFO and, and take off from this planet. So good luck to you, Lucio. If you do get it working, please stop by and say hi. Alrighty, let's get to the main story of this episode. Sure, we have all seen the White House get destroyed by UFOs in the movies and on TV shows since probably the 50s. But have UFOs ever buzzed the White House? Or Washington, D.C., for that matter? Well, the answer shouldn't surprise you because the title of this episode is The White House and UFOs. So yes, yes they have. Before I get into that, though, I want to start with a debunk right off the bat. And that debunk is, no, Washington was never visited by an angel or a UFO. Here's that BS tale in a nutshell. It's on a ton of websites. If you look up White House and UFOs, it's one of the first stories you're going to come across. And a lot of the websites say the story is true. Well, guess what? It's not true. So here's that BS tale in a nutshell. An 1880 National Tribune had a story from a soldier that was with Washington in Valley Forge. 
Now, according to this soldier, that it was really harsh winter in Valley Forge. The men were cold, hungry, and tired, and Washington walked away from them to walk into the woods depressed. When he returned, Washington told of a tale of seeing a green orb and small creatures jumping out of it. Now, Washington said they must be local Native Americans. Why? I have no idea. If you see a bunch of real small men jumping out, small creatures, not even men, jumping out of a green orb, you don't immediately think of the Native Americans, but sure, Washington, let's go with it. Doesn't matter, it's all BS anyhow. So, Washington went on to say that the creature or being or angel, depending on where you get this story, in the original story, it was more like an angel, but it has since been updated to be, oh, they must have been talking about UFOs. Everything else they're talking about are aliens and UFOs. They just didn't know what to call them back then. Well, again, it doesn't matter because this story is fake, but the creature, being, angel, whatever, showed Washington a map of the United States. And as water dripped down from the skies onto the map, and the being said a bunch of incredibly boring stuff, each water droplet turned into a city as it hit the map, showing George Washington a United States filled with metropolises from coast to coast. It's a great little story. It's really neat. It's so easy to debunk. Let me tell you why. So, dumb troll that swears I don't say why something's bullshit, here you go. Listen closely. It's bullshit because it's called The Tale of Washington's Vision. And it was penned by Charles Wesley Alexander, who lived from 1836 to 1927. Well, he was a Philadelphia journalist that published The Soldier's Casket, a periodical for Union veterans of the Civil War. And he wrote under the pseudonym Wesley Bradshaw. Alexander authored several fictional vision or dream pieces. Let me repeat that for that idiot troll. Several fictional vision or dream pieces. They all featured historic American figures which were published as broadsheets and in various newspapers during the Civil War and were later offered for sale through advertisements in the pages of the soldier's casket. What that means? It never happened. It's a great story. Sadly, it's bullshit. And it's easily, quickly debunked. All right. So from that story of a founding father, let's move on to another founding father. There are two stories about Thomas Jefferson and UFOs. One, I can't verify if it's real or not. The other has proof that it was actually sent to Thomas Jefferson. A letter was sent to him, but I don't want to jump too far ahead, so here we go. It's said that Thomas Jefferson saw a UFO crash in the Earth 70 to 80 feet long, 200 feet high. It was crimson red when it passed over him and another gentleman and crashed behind a hill. Now that's probably a meteorite if it actually ever happened. It's a quick story. They all end just about the same. When they went over the hill, they saw the earth had been split open or cracked or whatever they want to call it, and there was wreckage or there was a thing there it wasn't really wreckage there was just something there that something was probably a meteorite now the other one though is a real letter that i can verify the letter is real edward hansford and john l clark to thomas jefferson 31st of july 1813 from edward hansford and john l clark 
We, the subscribers, most earnestly solicit that your honor will give us your opinion on the following extraordinary phenomenon, viz. I don't know what they mean by viz. It's written there, so I'm saying it. At some hour, I can't really read it, on the night of the 25th instant, we saw in the south a ball of fire full as large as the sun at meridian, which was frequently obscured within the space of 10 minutes by a smoke emitted from its own body but ultimately retained its brilliancy and form during that period, but with apparent agitation. It then assumed the form of a turtle, okay, which also appeared to be much agitated and is frequently obscured by a similar smoke. It descended obliquely to the west and raised again perpendicular to its original height, which was on or about 75 degrees. Her here, I'm almost done with this letter, don't worry. It then assumed the shape of a human skeleton, which was frequently obscured by a like smoke and as frequently descended and ascended. That's important. As frequently descended and ascended. So it didn't just crash to the earth. It went down and then went back up. Okay, the letter goes on to say, It then assumed the form of a Scotch Highlander arrayed for battle and extremely agitated and ultimately passed to the west and disappeared in its own smoke. Sir, with the sentiments of a very high in respect and esteem, your most obedient, very humble servants, Edward Hansford, keeper of the Washington Tavern in the town of Portsmouth, Virginia, John L. Clark of Baltimore. Look, it's a really interesting letter. It is real. It's in the National Archives. It was sent to them. Thomas Jefferson read it. They know that. And this might be the kernel of truth for that weird UFO story that real quick Thomas Jefferson saw a UFO crash, that story. I have a feeling this is the kernel of truth for that story. So whether Jefferson saw one himself, I don't know, but it does appear he was told a really batshit crazy tale that might have been a UFO sighting. And you gotta figure, in 1813, if they saw something that came out of the sky smoking, it was fiery, it went up, it went down, it went all over the place, seemed agitated. Maybe the only way they could really get their head around it was to say, well, it was kind of saucer-shaped, kind of like a turtle, kind of looked like a human skeleton. I don't get that one at all. Kind of looked like a Scotch Highlander. I don't know, maybe it was the Highlander. I don't know what to make of any, most of their story, but it does seem like something came to the West, disappeared in its own smoke, and then went back up. It's an odd story. I don't know what to make of it. Okay, with the weird odd stories out of the way, let's jump ahead to that hard-to-verify stuff in 1952 in Washington, D.C. Just to give you an idea of the time, UFO sightings were all the rage. Papers around the world were talking about them regularly, and people had UFO fever. Please note UFO fever is not an actual fever and should not be confused with an actual fever. If you have UFO fever, please consult your local paranormal podcast. This specific UFO incident is known as quite a few things online, so it makes research a little difficult. It's known as the 1952 Washington, D.C. UFO incident. Sure, that seems to make sense to me. It's also known as the Washington Flap. Okay. The Washington National Airport sightings. Makes sense. And also, the Invasion of Washington which is my personal favorite. These reports were from July 12th to July 29th, 1952, and the most seen and publicized sightings taking place on two consecutive weekends, July 19th and 20th, and July 26th and 27th. 
Here are a couple excerpts from witnesses. Now, the first up I can find was on July 10th. So it was actually a week before. It was actually really almost a week before those two consecutive weekends that really sparked it off. But a National Airlines crew reported a UFO nearby Quantico, Virginia. They described the object as, quote, too bright to be a lighted balloon and too slow to be a big meteor, unquote. Then on July 13th, so we're getting a little bit closer now, another commercial airline crew reported a UFO 60 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. The crew was flying at 11,000 feet when they spotted a light below them. The object came up to their level, and when they turned on their headlights, it shot up in the air in a steep climb. So two UFOs back-to-back -back right around the area, and I'm not even two the two weekends yet. The next day, on July 14th, yet another commercial airline crew reported a UFO. This time, it was during a flight from New York to Miami. While flying in the area of Newport News, Virginia, which is approximately 130 miles south of Washington, D.C., the crew reported seeing eight UFOs. Let me say that again. The crew reported seeing eight UFOs. Two days later, on the night of July 16th, at around 9 p.m., a, quote, high-ranking scientist from the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics Laboratory at Langley Air Force Base reported seeing a UFO with his friend. They were both standing near the ocean when they saw two amber-colored lights off to their right. The lights were silent, moving to the north. The scientist said they were, quote, much too large to be aircraft lights. Okay. So we have a bunch of sightings already all around the Washington, D.C. area. Now let's jump to Saturday, July 19th, 1952. Let's get right into it. The time was 11.40 p.m. An air traffic controller at Washington National Airport named Edward Nugent spotted seven mysterious blips or objects on his radar. Now these unidentified objects were located 15 miles to the southwest of Washington, D.C. So these were way closer than all the previous sightings in the weeks leading up to this. Now no known aircraft were in the area, and the objects were not following any established flight paths. His supervisor, Harry Barnes, a senior air traffic controller at the airport, watched the objects on Nugent's radar scope, and he later wrote, We knew immediately that a strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. Okay, so Barnes apparently not trusting his own eyes, or Nugent's eyes for that matter, had two controllers check Nugent's radar. And they said, yep, it's working normally. Barnes then called National Airport's radar-equipped control tower, and the controllers there, two men named Howard Coughlin and Joe Zacco, said that they also had unidentified blips on their radar screen and that they had seen, quote, a bright light hovering in the sky. It took off, zooming away at incredible speeds. Coughlin told Zacco, did you see that? What the hell was that? All right, so how many people have seen the blips or the actual UFOs now? We got Nugent, Barnes, the two people Barnes got, then Coughlin and Zacco, who sound like animaniacs, so I think we're up to six people right now just watching these things within 15 miles of Washington, D.C. And no one's calling the army yet. All right, well, let's see what happens next. At this point, other objects appear in all sectors of the radar scope. Oh, good. Then they moved over the White House and the United States Capitol building themselves. Now, finally, Barnes does something, and he called Andrews Air Force Base, which is a little over 10 miles north from the National Airport. So here's where they scramble jets immediately and shoot down the UFOs, right? 
Well, no. Andrews Air Force Base said, nope, nothing on our radars, sorry. Then, another airman called the base to say he saw strange lights in the skies heading towards DC. Airman William Brady, who was in the tower, then saw an object which appeared to be like an orange ball of fire trailing a tail. He said it was unlike anything he had ever seen before. As Brady tried to alert other personnel, the strange object took off at an unbelievable speed. So now we're up to nine people, no action. So let's bring in more people, shall we? A Capital Airlines pilot, S.C. Pierman, was on one of the National Airport's runways. Now he was waiting in his DC-4 for permission to take off, and he spotted what he thought was a meteor. Technically, it's a meteorite, but anyhow. Well, he reported it to the tower, who told him, hey, guess what? They had detected unknown objects closing in on his position. Still not freaking out, Pierman observed six objects. He called them white, tailless, fast-moving lights. This was over a 14-minute period. Pierman was in radio contact with, the, with Barnes. Remember Barnes from earlier? He was in radio contact with Barnes during his sightings, and Barnes later relayed that, quote, each sighting coincided with a blip we could see near his plane. When he reported that the light streaked off at a high speed, it disappeared on our scopes. Okay, so we got Pierman, who is an experienced pilot, watching these things for over a 14-minute period. He's in radio contact with Barnes, who knows everything up to this point. Again, he's the senior air traffic controller at the airport. Now, Barnes coincided each little blip with what Pierman was seeing. And when they streaked off at a high speed from Pierman, they disappeared on Barnes's scope. Caught up? Okay, so we got 10 people, no action yet. So let's head back to Andrews Air Force Base. Let's see what they're gonna do. So the control tower personnel were tracking unknown blips on their radar, but others suspected what they were tracking were simply stars and meteors. Wait, what? So they were tracking stuff on their radar at Andrews Air Force Base. Some people there suspected and were able to actually prove some of the things they were tracking were stars and meteors. Kurt here, um, so stars and meteors show up on radar? No, they don't. I looked into this, they don't. So that statement from 1952 makes absolute no sense. Stars and meteors do not show up on radar. Yet every story about this incident says this, and witness testimony says this. It makes zero sense. All right, we're going to continue on. We're still at Andrews Air Force Base, where Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport said that he observed, personally, an orange-red light to the south. He said the light would, quote, appear to stand still, then make an abrupt change in direction and altitude, and this happened several times, end quote. Okay, so I think, I think we're up to 12 people, no action. UFOs are zipping to and over Washington, D.C., including the White House and the United States Capitol building. So, multiple targets in Washington, UFOs are over them. Still no action. Now get this. At one point, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking an object hovering over a radio beacon. The object vanished in all three radar centers at the same time. 
I don't know what the third center is. It doesn't really say this. The point of that is they could confirm everybody that was tracking this could confirm at the exact same time when the object vanished, which means it's a real object, not a not a ghost, not a phantom blip, none of that. It's a real object. So you remember how all this started at 11.40 p.m.? Well, it wasn't until 3 a.m. when two United States Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from the Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington. Four hours late. Not surprisingly, all the objects had vanished from the radar at the National Airport. Well, these Starfire jets flew around for a bit, wondering where the UFOs went. However, when the jets ran low on fuel and left, the objects returned, which convinced Barnes that the UFOs were monitoring radio traffic and behaving accordingly. The objects were last detected by radar at 5.30 a.m. with no major armed forces chasing them at all. Everything I've told you prior to this has been reported with eyewitness testimony, with radar blips. There's reports and documents to back everything up. This happened. Now, needless to say, everything that I just talked about made the news, and rightfully so. We had multiple glowing objects taking off and changing speed and directions all over the White House and the Capitol building and the rest of Washington, D.C. Of course it made the headlines. The headline from the Cedar Rapids Gazette in Iowa read, Saucers swarm over Capitol. Indianapolis News said, Hundreds in state see flying saucers. And here's a couple more headlines about this incident. Saucer outran jet. Jets chase saucers. There was a bunch of headlines. For whatever reason, 1952 had UFO headlines in papers across the nation almost the entire year. It was a serious hotspot of UFO activity. In fact, everything I could find about 1952 said Project Blue Book had the most reports in 1952 than any other year. And speaking of Project Blue Book, with all these sightings and all the news coverage, who should come investigating? Yep, Project Blue Book. Because United States Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who was the supervisor of Project Blue Book at the time, well, he was in Washington, except no one told him about the UFO incidents. It wasn't until he saw the newspapers that he found out there was even an instance that happened. Now, from a different source, this is what took place as far as Ruppelt said. He said, at 11.30 p.m., it was decided to call in interceptors to check out the objects. Again, they were too slow to respond, but two Lockheed F-94 Starfires were in the air by midnight. At this point, reporters and photographers were asked to leave the radar room. So there were actually reporters and photographers in the radar room when all of this was going on. Ruppelt also said the radar room was cleared because some of the Air Force officers thought this might be the night they get a good close-up look at a UFO. He was informed that everybody in the radar room was convinced that the targets were very probably caused by solid metallic objects. There had been weather targets on the scope too, he said, but these were common to the Washington area and the controllers were paying no attention to them. And that'll come up later. Also important, he said that visibility was good. However, when the jets approached the objects, the objects would disappear from the radar screens. The jets returned to their base. However, a few minutes later, strange lights were seen near Langley Air Force Base. 
The lights were described as rotating and giving off alternating colors. The radar tower operators also saw the lights, physically saw the lights. So they called in those F-94 jets to check it out. Speaking of the F-94 jet, the jet pilot spotted the UFO lights and began moving towards it when the lights disappeared. The pilot continued to fly around the area and achieved a radar lock on the object, but whatever it was, it sped away. So he actually got radar lock on it, trailed it, and it just sped away from an F-94 jet. The same thing happened two more times. Soon after the events near Langley Air Force Base, objects were again observed over Washington National Airport. Now again, this is everything that I have just told you, but this is from Ruppelt's report itself. So he's actually corroborating everything that's already been said. Okay, so after the... So after the events of Langley Air Force Base, objects were again observed above Washington National Airport. Jets were scrambled again, but this time the objects stayed on radar as the jets approached. The tower controllers gave the jets the coordinates of the object, but each time a jet closed in, the objects would speed away. Not disappear, not fade out, but speed away. This interaction continued for a few minutes until one object did not speed off. The F-94 pilot saw a bright light and hit his afterburners to try and pursue the object. However, as he got closer, the light just, poof, disappeared, and he could not get anything on his radar anymore. Those jets stayed in the area for another 20 minutes, but finally ran low on fuel, like I said, and had to return to base. Dawn began to break, and the targets all disappeared. Now, the next day, press reported that the fighter pilot, Lieutenant William Patterson, said... I tried to make contact with the bogeys below 1,000 feet, but the radar controllers vectored us around. I saw several bright lights. I was at my maximum speed, but even then, I had no closing speed. He goes on to say, I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance of overtaking them. I was vectored into new objects. Later, I chased a single bright light, which I estimated, which I estimated about 10 miles away. I lost visual contact with it about 2 miles. Now, he was told at 10.30 p.m. the Washington National Airport had once again picked up the slow-moving targets. Now, these objects were in an arc surrounding the Washington, D.C. area. He says the objects spanned from Herndon, Virginia to Andrews Air Force Base. And he also goes on to say the same radar operators were present from the prior event, so they were prepared and working quickly to mark and track the UFOs. He says they contacted Andrews Air Force Base, who confirmed they were also tracking the objects. So we had a pilot who went on record. We have Ruppelt himself who went on record. But let's find out what happened to Ruppelt. So he's in Washington. All of this is going down. He got the report the very next day. He wants to stay and figure out what the hell's going on for Project Blue Book. Well, here's the problem. The USAF Finance Department would not approve his extension to stay in Washington, D.C. And they sent him home. Ruppelt returned to Wright-Patterson... And the only thing he really would go on publicly to say right then was that he was too swamped with, quote, real UFO cases to investigate elsewhere. He also went on to give a total BS excuse, which I think personally was handed down to him from higher up. And that excuse was the weather at the time could cause false positives on the radar. So it must have been that. And just like the last episode I was telling you about, they went on to say it was stationary objects reflected into the sky due to a mirage and no one actually saw any of the glowing objects flying off, changing speeds, or directions that they thought they saw. 
So it seems like Rupelt, again, to me, it seems to me he was handed down this. I don't really personally think that he was the one who gave this, but he might have been. But he gave the same BS answers that Project Blue Book seemed to give everybody whenever a UFO was spotted. All right, so at this point, we're only up to July 20th. And like I told you at the beginning of this episode, it was two consecutive weekends. So guess what happened the following weekend, July 26th and 27th? Well, more UFOs were spotted, the exact same scenarios, the exact same locations. Now, I don't mean exactly like it was a carbon copy. Oh, the object is here. Now I'm seeing two of them. You're seeing two of them. Let's get a jet. The jet sees the same thing. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is more unidentified blips, more unidentified blips on the radar screens. Pilots, personnel, and civilians saw UFOs in the same general areas for the second consecutive weekend. Is that right? For the second consecutive weekend? I think that's right. For the second consecutive weekend, Washington, D.C. was being buzzed by UFOs again. Directly over the White House, the Capitol building, and all the rest. Now, not surprisingly, the news got wind of this one, too, and this time, someone wanted an answer. And that someone was President Harry Truman. In just about every, not just about, in every article I can find about this, in all of my research about this incident, Truman had his Air Force aide call Ruppelt and ask for an explanation of the sightings. Now, Truman didn't say anything on the call, but he was on the line when his Air Force aide and Ruppelt were talking. Now, he just sat and listened to the conversation between the two men. Ruppelt went right into Project Blue Book 101, apparently, and said all of his same old BS, the temperature inversion, false positives crap. But he also said he hadn't really investigated it yet. Because of who else was on the line, Truman, Ruppelt immediately called his supervisor afterwards, and it was a supervisor officer at the Pentagon, Major Dewey Fournette. And he was told there was already investigation happening at Bowling Air Force Base. Ruppelt headed there and received a briefing from the intelligence officer. Intelligence officer. And at this meeting, they learned a lot of stuff. They learned that 11.40 p.m. the previous night, seven objects were caught on radar at Washington National Airport. At first, the radar operators mistook it for a formation of planes. But nothing like that was scheduled. The objects moved slowly at about 100 to 130 miles per hour, but then would streak across the scope in sudden bursts of speed. The targets had moved all over the area, including over prohibited areas such as the White House and the U.S. Capitol building. One of the objects was clocked at speeds of more than 7,000 miles per hour, which explains why the F-94s couldn't catch it. Now, another gentleman, General Samford, had a press conference to try and stop the news around the country from reporting on this specific incident. They thought, and rightfully so, that two consecutive weekends of things buzzing over the White House was probably bad press. So, he tried to use the same BS excuse, the whole temperature inversion mirage explanation, and guess what? The press, the witnesses, the Air Force personnel, and the United States Weather Bureau all said that was ridiculous. In fact, one official from the Weather Bureau said such an inversion ordinarily would appear on a radar screen as a steady line rather than single objects as were spotted on the airport's radar scope. And for some reason, Ruppelt himself went on record to say 
that he discovered that, quote, hardly a night passed in June, July, and August in 1952 when there wasn't a temperature inversion in Washington. Yet, the slow-moving, solid radar targets appeared only a few nights. So, Ruppelt, who was initially spouting this bullshit, maybe perhaps even coming up with it, is now going on the record to say none of that was true. Which, again, leads me to believe that Ruppelt was being told what to say for Project Blue Book. Not that you need this, but... Experts throughout the years have looked into this case and all have said weather inversion explanation just doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, I have not found one independent expert online that believes this was even remotely a possibility. All right, so let's get back to Ruppelt's investigation throughout the following weeks. He seems like a good guy. What did he have to say? Well, his report went on to say that the control tower at Washington National had called the control tower at Andrews Air Force Base and notified them that their radar had an unknown object just south of the Andrews control tower, directly over Andrews Air Force Radio Range Station. According to Ruppelt, when the Andrews control tower personnel looked, they all saw, quote, a huge, fiery, orange sphere hovering over the range station. When Ruppelt interviewed the tower personnel several days later, they insisted that they had been mistaken and had merely seen a bright star. In a matter of several days, they went from seeing this very close-up, huge, bright orange sphere they'd never seen before hovering directly over the range station to, oops, our mistake, it was just a star. However, when Ruppelt checked on an astronomical chart, he found there were no bright stars over the station that night and that he had, quote, heard from a good source that the tower men had been persuaded a bit by superior officers to claim that their sighting was merely a star. So someone's already covering this stuff up as quick as Ruppelt can investigate it. Ruppelt also interviewed witnesses who claimed to have seen structured craft and not merely glows or bright lights. On July 19th, an Army artillery officer, Joseph Gigandet, sure, was sitting on the front porch of his home in Alexandria, Virginia, across the Potomac River from Washington. At 9.30 p.m., he claimed to see a red, cigar-shaped object which sailed slowly over his house. Now, Gigandet estimated that the object's size is comparable to a DC-9 airplane at about 10,000 feet altitude. He also claimed that the object had a series of lights very closely set together on its sides. The object eventually flew back over his house a second time, which led Gigandet to assume that it was circling the area. Let me pause right here to say that the Army artillery officer, Joseph Gigandet, knew what a blimp looked like and said this was no blimp. Now, he says when the object flew away a second time, it turned a deeper red color and moved over the city of Washington itself. This occurred less than two hours before Edward Nugent first spotted the unknown objects on his radar at Washington National. Dr. James E. McDonald, who was a physicist at the University of Arizona, he was also a prominent ufologist in the 60s, probably because of this, did his own analysis of the Washington sightings. Now, he spoke with uh, four pilots and five radar personnel who were involved with the 1952 incident. Guess what he came guess what conclusion he came to that that whole temperature inversion theory was utter crap. He also came to the conclusion that that the incident was an instance of unidentified aerial objects over our capital. 
Howard Cochran, remember him from earlier in the story? Well, he also told a reporter in 2002 he was convinced he saw an object over the Washington National. He says, I saw it on the radar screen and out the window. It was a whitish-blue object, not a light, a solid form, a saucer-shaped object. So we had this really in-depth report. It was packed with eyewitness testimonies and some amazing tales. It also had some serious BS explanations. And guess what? That caused the CIA and the Air Force to create the Robertson Panel in January of 1953. So less than a year later, they're already investigating the official report of UFOs over the White House. Dr. Howard P. Robertson, who is a physicist, well, he chaired that panel, the Robertson Panel, hence why it's called the Robertson Panel. And he said he spent four days examining the, quote, best UFO cases collected by Project Blue Book. Now, you have to remember, this was from the CIA and the Air Force. They created this Robertson panel, but they created it to debunk UFOs. They were trying to shut down all these news reports and all this information. So not surprisingly, a government-funded panel dismissed nearly all the UFO cases examined. Not just this one, but all the UFO cases that Project Blue Book had examined. They dismissed it as not representing anything unusual or threatening to national security. The panel also concluded that the Air Force and Project Blue Book needed to spend less time analyzing and studying UFO reports and more time publicly debunking them. The panel recommended that the Air Force and Project Blue Book should take steps to, quote, strip the unidentified flying objects of the special status they had been given and the aura of mystery that they have unfortunately acquired. So following the panel's recommendation, Project Blue Book would rarely publicize any UFOs, any UFO cases that it had not labeled as, quote, solved. This Robertson panel basically just knocked the legs out from under not only Project Blue Book, but this entire incident, the invasion of Washington, or the Washington Flap, which now I understand why they called it the Washington Flap, because no one did anything for hours. They'd see something, go, hey, did you see that? No, you saw that too? Let's ask that guy if he saw it. Hey, he saw it too. How about them over there? And they saw it? What about the pilot down there? Well, he saw it too. What do we do? Of course, it's called the Washington Flap. Nobody was responsible enough to call anybody to shoot down anything that was illegally over the skies of the Capitol building and the White House. Okay, so I'm sure some of you have seen some pictures and videos of this event online. But guess what, guys? 99.9% .9 of all of these photos are recreations of the event. In fact, it is so hard to determine which, if any, are real. I'm not even going to include the most quote-unquote famous photo from the invasion of Washington. It's a photo of the Capitol building with some strange lights over it that appeared in magazines about the events for years. It's all over the internet. It's all over all these websites. Here's the problem. Not only has it been debunked as not being from the event itself, but being taken years later for a different reason, but these little lights that are over the Capitol building, well, they actually correspond with window lights from the building itself. It is just a bad photo where these lights are reflected in the picture. So they're not even UFOs at all. 
Yet this photo is quote-unquote proof that the Washington incident is real. I wish it was, but it's not. And like I said, it's so hard to determine which photos are real and which aren't that I scrapped the idea completely of adding a photo from this incident to the Facebook and to the, uh, and to the Instagram too. What I can tell you is there are so much eyewitness testimony from this. There are so many reported instances. There is so much documentation from this. It is impossible that nothing happened those nights in 1952 over Washington, D.C. Okay, that leads me to the question that I always ask at the end. What do you guys think? Why do you think that no one scrambled to shoot down these UFOs? Do you think that we already knew about them? Because I personally think we did. We already knew that we couldn't match them technologically. And we might have already made a deal with them at this point. Or... Do you think that no one just knew what to do because no one knew what to do? It was never an issue before. Supposedly, it's never been an issue since. Now, I'm just like you guys. I wish a UFO would just land on the lawn of the White House, especially nowadays, when there's so many more people out there, so many more cameras out there, that a UFO would just land on the lawn. Boom. Proof positive. Aliens are here. I personally don't think that's ever going to happen but I personally think it's because we made a deal with the aliens. What that deal is is yet to be determined, but I don't think we're ever going to have disclosure like that. I think, like a lot of people think, disclosure's already started. Disclosure has started a while ago, and there's so much information online, and there's so much evidence and information online, and eventually it's going to become a non-news story. Once it becomes a non-news story... Of course they're going to release everything. That's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for us to not care anymore. For whatever reason, in my opinion, that's what they're waiting for. Coming to you live from nowhere near Washington, D.C., once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. I'm Ravenna. Missed it. Ew. Heard you, Lurie, you